Hi, Seabreeze. It's good to be with you today. If you're new to Seabreeze, my name is Bevan. I'm the senior pastor here. And we're in a series of messages we're calling, I Can Do That. In this time in our life, we are in a season of unprecedented restrictions. And restrictions, of course, are all about what we can't do. But God has centered our freedom around the things that we can do. The Bible is full of people who faced far greater restrictions than we ever have and are facing right now. But that did not stop them from doing what God wanted them to do. And their examples remind us of how important it is to focus our attention on the powerful things that we can do rather than all that we can't do. We began a couple of weeks ago talking about the Apostle Paul who pressed on in spite of being put in prison. Now, we can press on. We're not in prison, so we definitely can press on like Paul did. Then last week, Elliot talked about Elijah, who prayed earnestly, and as a result of his prayer, an entire nation, thousands and thousands of people turned back to God. We can pray just like Elijah did. We can do that. Today, we turn our attention to Job. Now, Job is widely known as the man who set kind of the high water mark for personal tragedy. In just a few days, Job's life fell apart. He lost everything, including his health. Now, Job is known, of course, mostly for all of the horrible things that happened to him. But the book of Job that carries his name is really mostly about how Job responded to everything that happened to him. And Job chose contentment in spite of the life-shattering disappointments that he faced. The question, of course, is why and how did Job do that? That's what we're going to be looking at today. A few years ago, I took my nieces and nephew on a hike uh, to the top of a mountain uh, that was behind their home in Flagstaff, Arizona. We found a a clearly marked trail, and for hours we made progress up the side of this mountain. But at one point, we rounded a corner, and there in front of us, rising in front of us, was this cliff that must have been about 100 feet tall. And we went from side to side looking for a way around it, and there was just no way to get around this cliff. And at that point, we realized that our goal of getting to the top was over. Now, this is really an image of the experience of disappointment. You know, we're making progress towards some goal. We've put a lot of effort into it, and all of a sudden, we face this barrier. We face disappointment. And our initial response is, oh, no. Now, on a small scale, disappointment happens usually even daily. You know, we're hoping for a relaxing evening at home, and then Conflict erupts between us and our roommate or us and our spouse. Oh, no, that's not the evening we wanted. Or we're running late for an appointment and all of a sudden traffic jams up. Oh, no, that's not what we expected. But those are small disappointments. And then, of course, there are the El Capitan-sized disappointments that we face over time. It's like that massive cliff rising from the valley floor of Yosemite. And there's just no way we're going to get around this massive disappointment. Maybe it's a marriage that we've been working on for years, and it it just ends. Maybe it's a pregnancy that we've been praying for, and it doesn't happen. Maybe it's a child that we've been loving and raising and investing in for two decades, and they make a decision that just breaks our hearts. All of these disappointments and more, really the, the, the phrase, oh no, just can't capture how devastating these are. We really are at that point on that valley floor looking up at this massive cliff thinking, how are we going to get around this? This was the situation that Job found himself in. Now, Job was the Jeff Bezos of his day. 
Bezos, of course, is the founder of Amazon, and he's the richest man on the planet. As of just a few days ago, he was worth $188 billion. And this changes every day because Amazon stock changes. But Job was not just the richest man on the planet. He was wealthy in areas where it really mattered. He was wealthy when it came to family. He had seven sons and three daughters and a wife. Now, Job not only had money and a good family, he was also a good man. In Job 1, verse 1, the opening part of the book, he is described as a blameless and upright man, a man who takes God and his ways seriously, who fears God. In verse 3 of that opening chapter, Job is simply summarized as saying this, he was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. Now, if you get a verse in the Bible that says that about you, you're in pretty good shape. You're doing well. But in spite of all of that, Job's life took a sudden turn for disaster. It began with a meeting that Job did not see that occurred between God and Satan. God points out to Satan, his servant Job. He points to Job as an example of a man who's living the kind of life that brings honor to God. But Satan isn't buying it. Satan is not about to give any honor to God. So this is how Satan responds in Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge, which means a protection around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So God points to Job and sees someone who is honoring him. But Satan, on the other hand, sees someone who is well compensated for honoring God. And Satan's point is this. God, this is really not a relationship of love. This is not about a commitment to you. The way this man is living is not because he agrees with you in your ways. All of this is simply a deal between you and him. The deal is this. He does what you want, and in return, you give him the life that he wants. So what you see, God, Satan is saying, is, is not obedience from a heart that is convinced that you and your ways are right. What you are really seeing is an individual who's being compensated, who's being paid. And for that, in, ex in exchange, he expects the kind of life that you have now given him. So Satan is saying, God, there's nothing honorable about this. This is just business. This is just a contract. This is just a deal. This is just an arrangement between you and Job. And this is just one of the many deals that you've struck. And Satan says, God, if, if you break that deal, then you'll find out what's really true of Job. Now, this is quite an accusation leveled by Satan. And God decides to let Satan test that accusation. Why? Does God have to answer Job or, or really anyone who accuses him? No, of course he doesn't have to. But God chooses to answer this accusation and allow this story to play out this way because this accusation gets at the common problem that we all have when it comes to relating to God. We all tend to, to arrange deals in our own hearts with God, deals that he has not written but that we've formed in our hearts. Some of these deals we're aware of, but most of these deals are hidden deals. We don't know that we've written them up. They exist in our hearts, but not necessarily in our minds. And these deals don't surface until God doesn't do what we expect Him to do, and then we're upset. 
and we pout or we turn our backs on God because he hasn't done what we expected him to do. So what Job wrestles with in this book is really what we all wrestle with when things go bad. This is the question that we all face, the question that Satan asks at the beginning. Will we fear God for nothing? Will we take God seriously for nothing? Or do we expect something in exchange? Do, do we expect some kind of life? Do we expect some kind of conversation? Is, is this a deal or is this a relationship of love and commitment? Now, the point of creation is to bring honor and glory to God, to display how good he is, how wise he is, and how powerful he is. Now, inanimate objects like sunsets and waterfalls and places like Yosemite do a great job of bringing honor and glory to God. But they are nothing in their capacity to bring honor compared to individuals like us, free-choosing creatures who, without coercion, decide to love God and trust Him and obey Him in spite of hard things happening. But what keeps getting in the way of us honoring God is our tendency to make these God deals. And God, therefore, is committed to tearing up these deals, to revealing them, and tearing them up. And his primary deal-busting tool is disappointment. Disappointment occurs whenever a deal, small or large, that we formed in our hearts with God, and we think God should have signed off to, whenever that deal goes south, that's disappointment. One of the big deals that I wrote years ago that God tore up had to do with buying a house. We moved to Huntington Beach 30 years ago, so that I could pastor this church. And to do this, we left homeowning behind us. We knew that it would be next to impossible to ever buy a home in an area like Huntington Beach. But after we had been here and we'd been renting for about 10 years, our landlord at the time raised our rent by 60%. We couldn't pay 60%. And that forced us to find a new place and move the entire family in just 30 days. And I was furious. I was really mad at the landlord. But you know who I was really upset with? I was upset with God. And I didn't say these words, but I thought these words several times in my head. And these words were, God, what's the deal? The operative word being deal. This is what I actually thought. God, what's the deal? Why are you doing this to me? And God's response to me, again, it wasn't audible, but as I thought about this, this is really what God was saying to me through this process. He was saying, oh, Bevan, so the reason, just to be clear, the reason that you're following me, the reason that you're obeying me, the reason that you're handling the finances and the way I tell you to handle the finances is so that this kind of thing won't happen. Is that right? And I had to be honest with myself, and the answer is, yes, I guess that's right. And I didn't realize until that point that I had written up a deal and I'd forged God's name on the bottom of that deal. And it's not a deal that God had made. I didn't know that. But we had made a deal. Now we do own a home. But it wasn't until I had torn up that deal in my heart that God allowed that miracle to happen. One of the things I've discovered about God is that God is committed to our long-term good, which often means our short-term disappointment. So what happens in the story is God lets Satan unload one major disappointment after another onto Job's life. Job's entire life 
very quickly falls apart. One servant first enters to tell Job that a raiding party has come and stolen all of his donkey and all of his oxen. And then right after that, another servant comes in to tell him that fire has fallen from heaven and consumed all of his sheep and all of the, the hands that were tending the sheep. And then a third servant comes in right after the second one to say another raiding party had come and taken all of his camels. Now, in the ancient world, livestock was how resources were accumulated and stored. So the modern translation of this would be, in a few short days, all of Job's financial resources were drained. All of his bank accounts, all of his assets went to zero. He went from $188 billion to zero all, of a, all at once. But that wasn't the worst. Lastly, Job is told that all 10 of his children had been killed by a tornado. That must have been the hardest of all of the news that Job received. Now, may we never face a day like Job did. But when we do face the cliffs of our own disappointment, whether they're small or large, there is no better rock-climbing guide than Job. He chose contentment. Contentment is the anti-deal. It's the opposite of the deals that we make with God. What does it mean to be in a state of non-drug-induced contentment? Well, the root of contentment is content. And that tells us what it really means to be content. Content is simply what you have. So contentment is the condition of accepting what God has given you. Accepting the content, what you have. Now, it's the opposite of contentious. Same root word to both words, but when you're contentious, you don't accept what you have. You fight it. You're contentious about it. Now, contentment is not this passive lack of drive that says, whatever, I'm okay with whatever happens. No, it's, it's the decision to accept from the hand of God the circumstances that you're facing and ask Him what you need to do next. It's a moving forward, aggressive kind of thing, but it accepts what God is delivering to us, the content that is present in our life. Now, contentment involves two areas. It's chosen in two different areas. The first is thing contentment. These are the, the math deals. The deals that we form are in these two categories. The first category are the math deals. This is the thing contentment. Many of the deals that we write and expect God to sign off on are really simply a demand, a math kind of demand, that God would add to our life and not subtract from our life. Here's the summary of all of the math deals. God, I'll do this. I'll obey you. I'll, I'll handle things the way you want me to. In exchange, I expect you to increase the bottom line of my life. I expect you to add more to my life. Not just money, but happiness and everything else. That's the math deal. Now, Job displayed amazingly he displayed immediately thing contentment. He knew that this life is not about the bottom line of the stuff that we have, even the people in our lives. He knew that life is bigger than that. He knew that it's not about the math and how things add up. So this is what he says in Job 1, 20 through 22. At this, now this is the news that he's just received. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
Now, you will never find a more amazing response to the kind of day that Job had than this. What's behind this response? Job was absolutely convinced that his life wasn't about what had been added or now what had been taken away from it. Why had Job come to this conclusion? Well, Job points to two pieces of compelling evidence behind his conclusion about this. He points to his birth, and then he points to his eventual death. Let's look at the evidence. First of all, Job says, look, I arrived in this world with absolutely nothing. God brought me into this world with nothing. The implication is this. If if anything is more important than a person, then it would have been included at their birth. But Job's birth, like all births, is just simply a naked body and nothing else. No other thing accompanies that body. And Job is really saying that birth, for all of us, is really God's way of saying to everyone, that's it. That's what really matters. That's what really counts, is the person. Whatever's added to their life or taken away from their life, that's not really what makes them valuable. It's the person that the value is rooted in. But of course, after a child is born, things are always added to their life. They get clothes, and they get shoes, and they get toys, and Then as they grow up, they get more expensive shoes and more expensive toys and more expensive clothes. And like Job, many acquire property and assets and spouses and families. And it's only natural as the years go on to begin to think of these additions as actually adding value to that person's life. But just in case we get confused about what really is valuable, we get confused on this point, God says the exact same thing with we, when we die. This is the second piece of evidence. He says to all of us, you know what? You're going out the same way you came in, naked, with absolutely nothing. So then what is the point of life? Well, the point is we get the chance to honor God by living a life that pleases Him and by making a God impression in the lives of those that we encounter. Now, you don't need pockets to take that with you. That has eternal value. So what then is the purpose of these things that are added to our lives after we're born and taken away when we die? Well, of course, we need them. We need clothes. We we need shelter. We need food. But these things are not the point of life. They're really like the the backdrop of life. They're like the, the props on a stage. They're there, and they're part of the scene, and they have a role to play, an important role to play, but they're not the point. The point is the story that's being told on that stage. So the scenes change, and with it, the props, but it's the story that needs to be emphasized. And this honoring God's story with our lives is so important for us to get that God will actually take props away to get us to focus back on the story. That's what really matters in this life. So as things are added to our lives, and then as things are taken away from our lives, it's really important, if we're going to be content, that we understand that those things, while valuable, and while our hearts are wrapped around them, they are not the real point of life. Now, Job got this at such a deep level that when he lost everything, he did not accuse God of wrongdoing. Now, he grieved. He grieved tremendously. But he did not charge God with ripping him off, doing the wrong thing. He understood that the real point of life is not the adding of possessions, 
The adding of sons, the adding of daughters, the adding of a wife, that's not the real point of life. It's good. It's helpful. We love those things, but that is not the center of life. And so when God subtracted those things from him, Job saw an opportunity to honor God, and he didn't charge him with wrongdoing. Job knew that the point of life was not the adding and not the subtracting, and so he rejected the math deal. But what Job really struggled with through most of the book of Job is this second area of contentment. This is thinking contentment. The first is thing contentment. This is thinking contentment. The the thinking contentment contains the fairness deals. So Job understood, amazingly, that life is not about the math. But what he didn't get and didn't understood and struggled to understand was why God treated him worse than his friends. His point to God was basically this. God, as far as I can tell, I'm more serious about you or at least as serious about you as my friends are. So why haven't you subtracted from their lives just like you've subtracted from mine? Why are you picking on me and not them? I don't get it, God. You see, it's one thing for us to be content with what God gives us. It's another thing to accept what God gives someone else, especially if it's more than what we have. That gets our minds spinning. That gets us struggling, and it did for Job. So for 37 chapters in the book of Job, most of the book of Job, with the not-so-helpful help of Job's friends, Job really struggles with this, these fairness deals. Now, his friends, they think Job must have been hiding a secret life of sin in order for God to bring all of this disaster on his life. But Job knows that's not the case. He knows he doesn't have a, a secret that is causing all of this disaster to come on his life. So throughout the book of Job, Job defends himself. And he actually demands that God defend himself for treating him so unfairly. He demands answers. And this goes on for 37 chapters. And finally, chapter 38, God answers. And the way God answers is very interesting. He doesn't answer Job with a straight answer. He begins to answer Job with a series of questions of his own. For four chapters, God asks Job questions. Let me just give you a sample of some of the questions. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What's the answer? Yeah, I wasn't there. Here's another question. Who decided the dimensions of this earth? Did you do the math on that, Job? Uh, No, Job didn't decide and he doesn't know the math. Job, who set the borders of the coastline? Did you do that? Obviously, Job didn't set the borders of the coastline. God did. This is the one, one of my favorites. Job, are you the one that sends the lightning bolts? The answer is, no, I don't have anything to do with that. God goes on to say, are you the one that they report to and say, here I am, ready to do your bidding? That's what they do to God, but they don't do that to Job. This is a great question God asks. Job, are you the one who determined all of the unique creatures on earth and what they should look like? That's a big job. Job had no hand in that. Now, God is making a point, actually a a rather sarcastic and powerful point in this way. What he's really saying to Job in these chapters is Job, sarcastically he's saying this, Job, since you did all of these amazing things, of course Job didn't, Job, because you did all these amazing things, I'm going to sit down and I will await your correction of me because apparently, based on your previous questions, 
you're of the, the opinion that I need to subject my thinking to you and I'm messing up and you need to correct my way of doing life. Well, Job gets the point. And here's how he responds in Job 42, verses 1 through 3. Then God replied to the Lord, or Job rather replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel with knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. So what's the answer to Job's fairness question? Why isn't life fair? What's the answer? Well, the answer is this. We live in a world full of things we don't understand, so we need to live in that world. And we need to make sure that we don't let our brain be the limit of our trust in God. Let me say that again. Don't let your brain be the limit of your trust. This is what Job was struggling with. Your lack of understanding, my lack of understanding of how things are doesn't mean that we can't trust the one who does know how things are and why things work the way they go. I mean, we trust things all the time that we don't fully understand. I mean, our lack of understanding of how things grow hasn't kept us from eating. So don't make the fact that you don't fully understand everything that God is up to stop you from trusting him. Don't limit your trust of God to the size of your brain. This is a very important lesson. Now, one of the questions I have had as I've read through the book of Job is, why didn't God just tell Job the answer that we know having read the book? Why not just tell Job about this conversation that God and Satan had? My thought is if God would just explain that to Satan, or rather to Job, that he'd had this conversation with Satan, then Job all of a sudden would say, oh, now I get it. Okay, that makes sense, but God doesn't do that. He tells us, but he doesn't tell Job. Why not? I think it's because God is not in the habit of making sure we agree with his plans or understand with his plans before he does them. And God is not answering Job's questions, but he is answering everyone's questions in doing this. God is not going to take time to explain every detail of why he's doing everything in our lives. He didn't do it with Job, and he won't do it with us. The answer for all of us is this. God is greater than our mind can comprehend. He runs things on his level, not on our level. You and I will just have to trust the one who directs the lightning bolts. And we're left with that. He's up to something that will honor him. He promises us that. And something that will be for our good. He promises us that. It will be for our good in the end if we just follow him. So let's set aside the math deals and choose to be content as things are subtracted from our life. And let's make this about the story that is written to bring honor and glory to God, not to us, and not about the props that come and go off the stage of our life. And let's set aside the fairness deal and allow God to run the universe without our approval. When my grandmother was 90, She told us that she had found her life verse. Her life verse was Philippians 4, verse 11. This is what it says. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now, I thought it was interesting that grandma had given us her life verse at the age of 90. Every other person that I'd heard had a life verse. They chose it early in life, so it would kind of guide their life. Now, why did my grandmother choose this late in life? I'm not exactly sure. But this is my guess. 
watching her life in the latter stages of her life, I think contentment was getting harder and harder and harder to find as she was sitting there in the darkness of her blindness. I think it was a struggle. But the last thing she wanted to do is to dishonor God in the latter part of her life. I mean, she'd spent her entire life working on honoring him, and she didn't want to finish as a bitter and caustic person accusing God of wrongdoing. Now, she was a very, very private woman, but she made this verse public and her commitment to it. And it seemed to me the reason she did that is because she knew that if she didn't state it publicly, she might just not finish well. So if my grandma can do this, you can do this. I can do this. We can choose to be content like Job did. But like each of these choices that we're going to look at in this series, this is not just a one-time choice. This is a daily choice. Sometimes it's a 10 to 15 times or more a day choice to be content. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you the creator of and director of everything, including lightning bolts. And in face of what we're facing, the disappointments, both small and large, we choose to trust you. Help us to see the math deals that we formed in our hearts so that we might tear them up and trust you. Help us to identify the fairness deals that we have and the places where we're pointing a finger at something that's unfair related to us and demanding that you Give answers that you will not give. Help us to trust you and honor you. And on the stage of life where our time on it is so brief, may we honor you and not wrap our hearts and our hands around the prop pieces, but focus on the storyline that will be told for all of eternity. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.